Hello, Fight Fans. It is Monday, November 20th, 2017, and this is the Monday Morning Analyst here on MMAFighting.com. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm the host of this podcast. My name is Luke Thomas. Uh, on today's podcast, we're going to get to um, not a whole lot from over the weekend that was all too remarkable. There was really two events, and we're really only going to focus on one. I'll explain how we're going to do that. But three parts of the podcast, we have an overview of what happened over the weekend. We take a look at some stuff in particular with some multimedia in the second segment, and then a brief look at what's coming up in the week ahead in the third. So from this past weekend, we had Bellator 188. That was supposed to be a bigger card than it was, but their main event fell out. So it ended up not being all that awesome, even though it did sell out in Israel, in Tel Aviv. Uh, but the bigger one of the two, which is where we're going to start today's podcast, is UFC Sydney. So let us get going with that. UFC Sydney, or as it's also known, UFC Fight Night Verdun versus Tybora, or as it's also known, UFC Fight Night 121. This took place at the Kudos Bank Arena in Sydney, Australia, obviously, for an attendance of 10,021. Uh, do I have the figures on um, the gate? I do not. Hmm, interesting. They didn't include the gate. Well, in any case, the main event, Fabricio Verdum taking on Marcin Tybora. He wins 50-45 on two scorecards, 49-46 on the other. Um, a decent fight, actually. Not a bad fight. Went a little long for my taste. I mean, I know it was scheduled to go five. I'm just saying in terms of how much... Ex I, I, I'm not super critical about it, but had it been a little bit shorter, it would have been less taxing on the viewer. Um, it had its moments. Tybora... Look, here, here's my major read on Tybora. He's actually a lot more talented than I thought. He is very quick at that at that head kick, which he has scored to um, previously very strong effect. And it kept Verdum honest here. Caught him a couple times. I guess not enough to really damage him in that kind of way, but nevertheless, you know, it really was, it, it, you could tell it's something he has uh, in his back pocket as a as a tool he can go to in a lot of different circumstances. Um, the real big difference for me was that, I, it's funny, you know, Tybora was doing a lot of stance switching, and my hunch is that, you know, he's trying out some new weapons, um, he probably wanted to keep Verdum confused, you know, there was just a lot he was trying to do in terms of setups. But in the end, it didn't really matter a whole lot. Because what you found with Verdum was what Verdum was doing is some guys in MMA, which you'll see is, and especially this is the case in the ground, it's like really clear in the ground. But this is true no matter the dimension. They won't launch a lot of offense until they get to a certain kind of position or circumstance. So for example, here's an exaggerated case of that. Um, someone does, you know, won't, won't throw any punches as they shoot in, they shoot in, they double, they double and they pass at least a half guard or side control. And once there, they begin to open up with elbows and punches and stuff. But they might not feel comfortable until they get to that kind of position. And I think that's what, to an extent, Tybora was trying to do. He was trying to freeze Verdum or make him confused or make him make bad choices because he couldn't get a read on what he was doing. But it was amazing because Verdum actually had the appropriate response. Verdum doesn't need to get all the way to a position to begin to open up for two reasons. One, uh, he's got offense everywhere. But more importantly, he was doing something in this fight that really enabled him to get what he wanted. Now, he would open up more in certain spots. It wasn't like he was delivering a consistent amount of offense across all circumstances or positions. Rather, what he was doing was, I think, uh, should be noted... One, he would do what I what I call like touch, touch, touch. And by that I mean 
he would just do a, f a few certain things in close proximity where he would not only change the rhythm and timing of his punches, but the power as well. So he might go very, very, very quickly and very lightly, shot to the body, shot to the body, jab, jab, hook. And none of these are hard. None of these are trying to hurt you. They're just trying to keep you busy while he waits for the big shot, and then there comes the overhand right. So touch, 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 bang. And then he would just absolutely crush, land a huge shot with it. That's one thing he was doing I noticed that was really, really great. He would get Tybora to cover up. He would hit him in different spots. Not very hard, just, just sort of making contact till he got just the right opening he, he was waiting for, and then he would launch the huge shot. That was something he was doing that was kind of interesting. The other thing was, when there were any kind of positional control issues, you know, if he had to launch offense with one hand, uh, you know, one hand with wrist control and then an elbow over the top, he would. And then he'd slide his body a little bit further behind the guy and he'd lock up a, you know, a, a tight waist. And from the tight waist, he might knee the body. And from there, he might trip. And if he trips and scores, he would then cover. But if he doesn't, he would then, I don't know, throw another punch behind or a head kick. Like, he always just found moments to sneak in bits of offense um, no matter what the position was. So at standing and boxing range, it was a lot of touch, 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 strike. And then no matter where else they were, it was a lot of touch, strike, touch, strike. Just constantly trying, you know, churning the machine of offense no matter what. And that actually was the thing that kept Tybora a little bit on the back foot, both metaphorically speaking and in actuality. Um, I just don't think he was used to that kind of pace. I don't think he had a real answer to really shut down the volume of Fabrizio Verdum. And he had a hard time knowing when that big shot was actually going to come. He could block all the small shots. He wasn't necessarily getting torn up by everything that Verdum threw. But the big stuff that Verdum wanted to sneak through, he could. Because Tybora just couldn't ever get really a read on when that was going to happen. I mean, it was a strong performance by Fabrizio Verdum. You know, he looked really good in this one. Tybora was a, is a tough test case. And he, again, he had his moments here or there. Um, he didn't get blown out by any measurement. But you could tell there was just a distance that was established between the two. But I really like what he was doing at boxing range. And then, of course, in, in, in the clinch as well. Where he's just touching you, just touching you, just touching you going different spots, different spots, all together in quick succession, and then you adjust your defense ever so accordingly, and then he just he lights you up. Uh, he did a great job of that. Jessica Rose Clark defeated Beck Rawlings, 29-28, 28-29, 29-28. Um, now, this was a catch weight because she had missed weight quite badly at 128 pounds. Not the worst of the two in terms of uh, missing weight, but... Uh, I should say other ones on this card had also missed weight. Um, so, what do you say about this one? I I don't know, man. Bit of a I mean, I, I realize that Beck Rawlings probably would felt better at this weight class, you know, one twenty eight. Um, but she, I think she had a problem with the physicality of Jessica Rose Clark, especially on the ground, especially on top. Uh, even standing, it just didn't feel like... I mean, she had her moments, don't get me wrong. Especially when they were exchanging kind of in the pocket. And it was a bit of a gunfight where, you know, kind of whoever gets there first wins. She had some moments there, but the physicality uh, and the strength and the control on the ground, it just seemed like a little bit too much for her. Now, again, she was dealing with an opponent who did not meet their weight obligation, so that's a bit of a problem. Um, but at the same time, it just felt like... I never knew where Beck Rawlings was headed with this fight. Like, what was she really trying to do in terms of an offensive game plan? I never really got a clear sense of that. And at least with Clark, you did. 
because you could tell she was really working behind uh, Jab, good body shots, really trying to open her up. She was the one who, and this was a spectacular moment in the second round. They didn't catch it until the break. She would, they were both exchanging hands, exchanging hands, and it's a bit tit for tat when they did it. And then Jessica Rose Clark would fire up a knee up through the middle and absolutely crush uh, Beck Rawlings as she walked into it. There was one time where she kind of walked back and she kept her hands up a little bit, but you could tell it struck her. And then uh, Rose Clark came up and just started banging on her when she was against the fence. So um, to me, it was just like there was just a little bit more diversity. You could tell where she was going with the strikes. You could tell she was looking for offensive opportunities on the ground. You know, couldn't get close enough ultimately, but um, there was just a there was a direction that that fight was headed, and I could never tell where where Rawlings was trying to take that one. Uh, okay, Bilal Muhammad defeats Tim Means, also split decision, 29-28, 28-29, 29-28, very, 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 very close contest, very difficult fight to judge, one of those fights where you're like, ugh, you know, I, could you, could, could either side really make a claim if they had lost that the, um, this was in any way a robbery. I mean, if it's difficult to judge, then then uh, what can you really say? And anytime you have a lot of offense, and there was some defense, don't get me wrong, but you know, there's just this enormous amount of offense that you're trying to like remember and how did it score and how did it land. You know, when you don't have a lot of offense, but whatever was there was hugely impactful because it stood out in some way. Uh, then it's easy to judge when, when there's just this pitter patter of constant offense, and you're not exactly sure what's what. You know, some of it's bigger, some of it's not. Uh, it becomes much more difficult to assess. So that's what happened there. I, I basically kind of thought Muhammad won, but I could have seen a case for Means. The thing that surprised me about Means was like he didn't. I know the commentators might disagree with this. I didn't think he really made very much effective use of the jab from either stance. To be honest, when he was in southpaw, he was firing a lot of left straight right hooks or just left straights. Um, but he wasn't really working at any kind of distance. He did throw some leg kicks that had some impact, so that was nice. But he wasn't really mixing up his kicks a lot. Maybe he was fearful of the takedown, um, although he had very good takedown defense by and large. But the thing that really surprised me was he didn't really exploit any height advantages that he had. And by that, I mean you saw him through the knees a couple of times, but never in any real way. Now, Muhammad was pretty good about not leaning too far forward or leaning too far down, so... It wasn't like he was always open for it. I'm not suggesting that much, but you know, he just never really was able to to bring that part of the, his offense to life. And I, I think if he can't mix up anything more than his hands against a guy who's pr- approximately as good as he is with his hands, and perhaps in different ways, then it's going to be a little difficult for him. The 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 strength of Means' game is his dynamism in all in all different phases. You know, and especially in the clinch with elbows. And then again, in the third round, he did have some success where he's able to like post and then pop with the elbow at the end. That was kind of nice. Bala Muhammad doing a really good job of being first a lot. You know, it's one of those cases where Tim Means was the one taking center by and large and and, and trying to hunt down Muhammad. But Muhammad doing a lot of not like Rose Nama Yunus leaping hooks, but the kind where you lean over and you throw the punch as you come over the top or the same side. He was going side to side, throwing punches like that. These were big, long punches. And because means was waiting so much to counter especially towards the beginning of the the second and third rounds that he just got caught a lot in ways where I didn't think he necessarily needed to you know this is sort of what I'm talking about where it was like you know this guy's got a lot of weapons and I don't know that he brought all of them to bear in part because Muhammad did a lot of great footwork as well he was moving I mean he you know he earned his victory um in a way that I think he can you know hold his head up high I'm just saying it was a good representation of Tim Memes, but it wasn't a great one. And I know he had that weird USADA punishment, and I know some folks think he's a cheater. I don't. Um, but in any case, tough fight to score. 
a lot of good stuff from both guys. I just think in the end there was a little bit more zip and pop on Muhammad. Um, you know, trying some takedowns, briefly getting one kind of never really got caught with that guillotine that means wanted and just means you know just trying to react too often. I don't think he I don't think he was able to put enough shots together in an impactful way to really signal to the judges, but he came pretty close. Jake Matthews defeats Boyan or however you pronounce it, Velikovic. Another split decision, 28-29, 29-28, 29-28. Uh, I saw this one the other way. I saw it for Velikovic. I thought basically he had better takedown defense, um, which I know defense is his own reward, but I thought there was just a lot of stalling going on by Matthews. I, I realized he eventually got the takedown in the first, but I thought when Velikovic got on top, he, he advanced to typically better positions, not in total, but generally speaking. I thought he did more damage on the on the feet. You could tell that you know, uh, Matthews got tired. Now, again, he was fighting up a weight class, but uh, I think he got a little bit of a lucky pull here from the judges. It's not that he was, you know, again, it wasn't it was supremely outclassed, but I thought that there was just enough going on on the Velikovic side of things, both in the control on the ground, the stifling of any kind of opportunity standing, and when they were standing to the extent that they did, it just seemed like Velikovic was a little bit fresher and a little bit more on his game. Um, so, a bit of a surprising result, but, you know, I guess I can't complain too much. Elias Theodoru defeating Dan Kelly, unanimous decision, 30-28, 30-27, 30-26. Don't understand the 30-26 at all. Not a great fight, you know, not the most spectacular fight. It always looked to me like both guys were, like, throwing a lot of shots off balance, and to an extent, that's understandable. Um, you know, Theodoru is trying to bob and weave, and he's trying to, you know, not create a stationary target, Generally, and then more specifically, he wants to avoid being locked up, you know, and the certain directions of punches. And you see Dan Kelly lean a lot when he's throwing punches and on defense. So he wants to avoid a lot of that. So that made sense. It just looked like it was hard for him to get meaningful offense off as a consequence. One thing he did that I liked, at the end of every, at the end of every clinch break, he threw, it appeared to be, a right either body kick or head kick. And again, they landed to varying effect, but it was always keeping Dan Kelly honest. Um, I kind of appreciated that. And I did like that one trip that Dan Kelly had. I was amazing. He had one arm and he had one foot, and he just tripped him. I'm not sure. Maybe it's Osotogari. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the judo term would, for that would be. But... Um, he hit it beautifully. Um, absolutely sent Theodoru flying to the canvas. That was really kind of cool. You know, perfectly timed. But from there, he tried a couple of the throws and, you know, he had moderate success. I think he got maybe one other one. Um, but nothing really substantive. And Theodoru was able to be on his feet uh, and moving the whole time. And I thought he had a good game plan. It just, from a spectator's point of view, when guys are throwing really off balance and they're turning and they're trying to get out of the way... You're just not getting the same kind of zip and pop on things that you ordinarily would expect. Uh, and then Alexander Volkanovsky defeating Shane Young, 30-27, 30-26 across the board. Volkanovsky strong. Um, what was that? He had like a reverse. No, not a reverse, but he had that one like... Uh, how did he get out of it? It was almost like... Oh, he had like a fireman's carry to side control. It was crazy. Uh, then we go to, to the prelim card. Ryan Benoit taking on Ashkan Mokhtarian. At 2.38 of the third round, he wins via KO head kick. This was really, really nice from him. Um, this is one thing that really sort of occurred to me. We've talked about it before. The way Mukatarian was moving, not merely laterally, side to side, but the big breadth of movement he was allowed is really a function of the octagon. You wonder if that kind of style, how badly that style would be compromised in a ring where you have right angles and not nearly as much space. 
Um, you, you just this is one reason why you see boxers who have better movement is because again not necessarily for MMA purposes but for striking we're, talk, we're talking about angles tight pivots um, those kinds of things trunk movement a lot of the reasons why boxers have just better movement is because they're forced to because they're in such close proximity they have to really have sharp angular quick movement that's technical fast um, and effective and with the octagon, it's not that you can't be tactical, it's not that you can't be technical, but because you have so much more space, uh, there isn't quite the same premium on those, for example, tight pivots. So that's something that kind of occurred to me, and it frustrated Benoit for a time, but man, Mokaterian was carrying his hands so low. Both guys were carrying their hands a little bit low, but Mokaterian just paid for it. I thought he had set this up in the way that OSP had set up his shot against Corey Anderson or... Uh, Christina Williams against Heather Hardy where they faked the punch then put the kick behind it but no he just timed it off of a jab or a feint from Mokaterian as Mokaterian shifted his weight forward hand came down even further and Benoit just timed it and absolutely crushed him with it brilliant shot from him quite honestly and then follows it up as the guy falls face first sort of a really bad angle but um, he had his moments too he was cracking him with the left uh, the, uh, in a variety of different circumstances Mokaterian was not out of this by any means but it was definitely striking more on his terms. And I thought Benoit was trying... Benoit's offense looked a lot more dynamic, but he was doing a lot of chasing. He was doing a lot of um, trying to counter. And that's when he got into a bit of trouble, but when the head kick notwithstanding at the end. Um, but generally, he was getting countered a little bit in this one. But when he took a little bit more control, more generally, he had, I think, some success. Uh, it's just it's hard to do when you have that much room to circle like that. It makes cornering a guy and forcing him to strike with you or getting what you with that position you're looking for a lot harder to come by. Also, uh, there was a catchweight that one on 129, so weight issues all the way around on this card. Uh, Nick Lentz defeating Will Brooks at 205 of the second round. Man, Will Brooks was looking so good, hands down, but he was bobbing and weaving effectively. He was so fast. Uh, he always does, but he appeared to be in tremendous shape for this one too. You know, he was early on, he was doing great, and he had that one takedown early where he was able to jump mostly to side control for at least a little bit. I think he eventually got caught up in that, but by that point, it was he was able to let go or get out of it. Now, Lenz says he let him, he let him out of it just to make him think he could do that again. So if he did, uh, credit to him. You know, you really have to wonder why he went for the second takedown. I, even if you thought you got away with the first one, you had to know that was this guy's bread and butter, and he's going to be able to lock it up on you in a way where... Your training partners may not be able to mimic that. You know, is Nick Lentz the best guy that Will Brooks has ever trained with at ATT? Probably not. But how many of those guys can lock up significant Armin guillotines on him as effortlessly as Nick Lentz can? You know, some of the bigger guys, maybe Shoeface could, but you get my point. At that weight class, not a lot of guys can do that. He's got a bit of an ace in the hole, and that's not a gimmicky thing either. That's a high percent. Well, it's a low percentage in terms of its its overall attempts versus its success rate, but it, as a tool that it has been proven to be effective in mixed martial arts contests as it's been innovated over the years, the guillotine choke is about as bread and butter as they come. Um, and some guys are really, really, really good at it. And you could tell, man... Not only does he have a real nice grip on it and know exactly how to get his hands in there and it's all instinctual and the muscle memory is all there, he prevents the pass. You can see he prevents the pass. And he doesn't have like a long, lanky frame. He's really good at making you lock up with him. And he only needs, for his kind of guillotines, he only needs half guard. He doesn't need full guard on you. He'll take full guard if you give it to him, um, but he doesn't really need it. And so, 
What do you say about Will Brooks? One and three in the UFC, you know? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the problem is. I, um, you know, you could say, did we all overestimate him at Bellator? Maybe, but I don't think that's true. Maybe he stopped growing as a fighter, so he was as good as we thought he was then, but as the game has moved along, he hasn't quite caught up. Maybe that's it. Maybe he's just turning in performances that aren't up to the level that we expect from him and that he can actually deliver. You know, if you if you are a guy capable of being an A student, but you're turning in C performances uh, for whatever reason, then you're going to look like a C student. Um, and that's kind of what he's looking like here. I, I, I mean, I really don't want to close the book on him because I part of me just absolutely feels like he can be better than what he is. But, you know, if he can't go out there and show it, it doesn't mean all that much. You can have all the confidence in the guy, but they've got to go out there and do the work. So he looked good early, but just making an absolutely tragic, terrible mistake and trying to go for that takedown when he didn't really need to. I know he likes to mix his offense up, but he was doing just fine. He was battering, and especially in the second round, he was really getting his timing down. Those jabs were hard and fast, and and he was marking up the face of Nick Lentz. Nick Lentz was not looking good on the ground there, but he, he made a bad call and paid for it. Uh, Tai Tuivasa defeating Rashad Coulter, flying knee, 435. Old Tuivasa is a big man. Um, he seemed to have just a real sense for explosive, fast, impactful offense against the fence generally, whether those are punches, knees, flying knees, kicks, whatever. He really liked, you could tell, he liked big, explosive movements um, in that vicinity. He had thrown, I think, the same knee prior, and it didn't land or didn't land with the same effect. And then he threw it again, again a little bit later. Um, also, Verdum tried a similar knee, by the way. So it was heavyweights doing flying knees against the cage a lot here. I just don't think Coulter... I mean, Coulter had just been kicked out from under him, and he was kind of scrambling and, and wasn't defending himself very effectively and didn't know how to cover up because he didn't know what was coming. And then this giant dude comes and just cracks you with a knee. It, you know, it, 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 it landed like it looked... And I think he even brought the head down with the hand. At the same time, so that thing just landed with absolute, uh, you know, total authority. Great win, undefeated guy. I'll be honest, I didn't know much about him, but uh, heavyweight could use some guys who can who can fight like that. So, so welcome to the big show. Uh, Frank Camacho defeating Demian Brown, split decision. Uh, Damian Brown, I should say, 28, 29, 30, 27, 29, 28. Hard one to score, man. I know these scores are kind of all over the place. Hard one to score. These two guys absolutely went to war. Really, really love this uh, from both of them, Camacho and. A little bit too much hugging and and, and high fiving, but um, generally speaking, a very spirited effort. I thought Demian Brown doing a little bit more in terms of creativity, Camacho doing a little bit more in terms of impact. Um, but both guys absolutely stepping on the gas all the way through. And this one, I believe, was one fight of the night. Now Camacho was not eligible for the bonus; it went to his uh, his opponent got one. But Camacho, I don't know if it, if it worked believe that Brown should have gotten his bonus as well. So Frank Camacho is a guy who uh, I knew a few years ago out here, actually. You could not imagine him a friendlier guy who is a more savage competitor ever. He is just so friendly and yet so, you know, just what a beast he is when he competes. Um, I'd like to see him make a little bit better decisions about taking punishment because we know he can deliver it. Um, especially, you know, I'd like to see him put together the kind of win streak in the UFC I think he's capable of. But, you know, we'll worry about that for next fight. As for now, big thanks to both guys. Uh, Nadia Kassim defeating Alex Chambers. She also missed weight, 
29, 27, 29, 27. You know, on the feet, I didn't think much necessarily of what either woman was doing. Alex Chambers had a decent first round and then kind of faded over the stretch, although she had a bit of a rally in the third. The big difference was that Nadia Kassim was much more able to, once they got to the ground, you could tell who the better grappler was. And that's not, that's not really true on top. That was true underneath on bottom, setting up heel hooks. And the heel hook wasn't close, but the good thing she was doing was controlling the far side leg for much of those exchanges. You know, it's, again, I, I'm going to say it a thousand times. It is one thing to lock up a leg um, on one side with a nice heel hook. And you, it's not saying you can't submit somebody. But the new hotness, what everyone is doing, is controlling both. Uh, either to positionally reverse or to make it hard for this person to escape. Because if you go against anybody good and you lock up a heel hook, inverted or not, and you only have control of that one leg, there's a decent or better chance it's not going to work, or at least not work to the extent you want it to. I mean, maybe you might hear some popping, and maybe they slow down a little bit for a round, but then they come back the next round all pumped up on adrenaline. That, you need you need something better than that. Uh, and then you got that here too, but you got that with her guard on top. You got that on top with her uh, ground and pound and her ability to reverse and take back. and um, She just appeared to, like, once she got into grappling mode in, in each of those rounds, she just kind of went off in her own way for the most part. Eric Shelton defeating Janelle Lausa, 30-27, 30-26, 30-25. Again, some of these scorecards, a little bit weird. 30-26, I guess I can understand. 30-25, I can't. Uh, Janelle Lausa, you know, showing some clear improvement in the grappling and wrestling department. But Eric Shelton, man, what a well-schooled fighter he is. You know, he's a very, very impressive guy. I like what he brings to the table. Um, a great wrestler. Had that, 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 that shot from way outside. It looked like a low single turned into a double or something. And it worked. Now, not advisable, but it shows you what kind of explosion and speed he has. He can pass. He can he can take mount. He can ride the back. He has good control over the wrists. He has good takedown defense. He has good timing. He has a lot of good things you really like. And on the feet, he was beating him up too. So, um, just a, just you know, not a terrible performance by Lausa by a stretch of the imagination. But you can just see, you know, Eric Shelton all the years in the gym. Maybe it took him a while before he was good, but now he's got a, a great skill set to work with and you know a couple things you can nitpick here or there like that shot from way outside but other than that pretty dominant performance and then Adam Wiesork defeating Anthony Hamilton your bonus winners as I mentioned five the night Camacho versus Damian Brown performance of the night went to Nick Lentz and Ty Tuivasa okay so let's do this let's go to the second segment now there was a Bellator card in Israel and it wasn't that great um it's not even worth really talking about that much to be honest except 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 there was a really crazy submission on there that I want to get to. We'll talk about that next. All right, so we didn't really get to Bellator because there wasn't really a lot to get to, to be honest. But there was this one moment from the weekend. Denise Kielholtz, um, obviously everyone knows her from her kickboxing background and her, and her great striking. She also has a judo black belt. Now, understand what it means when someone's a judo black belt. Does that mean they have like a Ronda Rousey game? It could mean that. But really, you just have to kind of understand it, it, it means a lot of different things, and it's hard to know. It's probably true that they're going to have good throws. It's probably true they're going to have strong grips. It's probably true that they'll have good trips themselves. You know, some of the things that, you, that most judo players do, from Dan Kelly to, again, Ronda Rousey to, you know, you pick anybody who was a judoka um uh, Makoto Takimoto, you know, anybody, uh, Hidehiko Yoshida, all these guys who are really good judokas, they all kind of have some of the same basic stuff. But even within judo itself, there's a couple things you'll notice. Some people have really good groundwork and some don't. Some have really good explosive, like a Flavio Canto groundwork, and some don't. Some are reliant on the gi and some are not. 
Um, you know, most judo players are relying on the gi for their best judo games. But I mean, as some guys who, you know, ladies who transition over to MMA, what do they have? And then there's then there's being a world class judoka, and then there's just being a black belt. So there's all different kinds of things that it means. But one of the other things that it means is that, or at least it can mean anyway, is that they might have strength in certain positions, both physical and then you know an understanding of the position itself in ways that you won't see in MMA or even in jiu-jitsu purely. Like, there's just certain grappling positions in judo that are very, very much not common in jiu-jitsu, which isn't to say you don't see them, but you don't see people with this kind of expertise and hustle. Here's what I mean. So here's Denise uh, on the right side of your screen. She's getting backed up by Jessica Middleton. Now, they're going to strike here. You're going to see they're just going to start winging shots. She misses... Left hook misses. Kind of a little bit undisciplined by both ladies. They're both tagging each other. But you're going to see Denise Kilholtz is going to get the best of it right here. And she pops her with a shot right there. That one moved her head around. So I don't really care about any of that. The striking's whatever. They grip. Now look here. See this left? She's going to club it around. Now she's got a collar tie. She missed with the punch, but now she's got a collar tie. Very Ronda Rousey-esque in that sense. All right, so then she's going to grip up. Now, she doesn't have much here. She has nice control over the head, but she doesn't look at her hands. There's not a whole lot going on there with the two red gloves. Just kind of like one arm around the head, like a Big Brother style, and then she's almost hugging the head. That can be enough, depending. And then you can see she quickly switches to the back of the arm. Now, she's working with gas. She's going to come behind with the whizzer. Let's see what she does here. She's trying to avoid being taken backwards. She's going to pin the arm inside. She's going to step around. And this is a major outer reap. For these purposes, we're going to call it a harai goshi. Now, I know that some folks are going to say, well, it's, you know, who, are, who might be like experts in judo, who are going to say it's not because there could be some other, like, a harai goshi, what you're looking for is, it'd be an uchimata if the leg, the this leg, and I apologize for the screen here, if this leg of Denise Kilholtz was between, it'd be an uchimata. But she's going around both thighs, so it's a harai goshi. But judo is very technical, and there's special names for everything. It could be one of those things where, you know, oh, it's only harai goshi if you're grabbing the sleeve and then the collar at the same time, or, you know, it's double sleeves or so something like that. But for our purposes, in terms of how she's using the leg, it's going to be harai goshi. So you see she's got the arm around here, and she's just kind of bringing her arm, Jessica's arm, uh, uh, close to her and across. And then she's using that to just launch her. And by the way, look how she resets her feet before. She has to switch her, her base, right? So she's got her hips close to the fence. She could do an uchimata here, but there's no real way to really dig up under the person. She's going to pull her weight down and forward, switch her hips and her base, and then she's just going to crash with her like that, all right? So now she goes down. Now she immediately, look at her legs, look at Kielholtz's leg. She's going to immediately spread her base like that. Number one, this is going to make it harder for her to be moved on top. And number two, she's going to do use this to dig up under behind the arm of Jessica Middleton for a couple of reasons. One, she's going to use it as a lever to try and break her arm. But the other one she's going to do for us to stabilize the position. If you can dig up underneath there with that leg, in this case her left leg, as you're reaching across and grabbing the head, you're helping to control the shoulders and the neck, and all you're occupying all the 
really important real estate you need because if you're Jessica Middleton, you now cannot bring your elbow down to the ground. Everything is being scrunched and controlled. She has control of your neck. She's got control of your shoulder. She's, she's occupying the space underneath. This is not great, but she actually does not hold on to it all that well. The problem is Jessica Middleton does this classic mistake where people who are, she might be good at jujitsu, uh, but people who aren't used to being in this kind of position with somebody from, like, let's say, judo, who's got a great, this is called a scarf hold or kesegatami, they'll have a great kesegatami game. They'll have great balance there. They'll have great, they'll have great pinning strength. They'll have great grip. They'll have great control. They'll know exactly how to set up a series of attacks based on your movements. You're just not going to find a lot of people in jiu-jitsu who have this. Recall that it was a bit of a size advantage, but recall Dean Lister got submitted by Josh Barnett from scarf hold, merely from control of the head and pressure on top of the chest and the sternum. You know, and that's a catch wrestling thing, but this is my point. Guys who have really good, and ladies, games at Kesegatami um, or scarf hold, you're not going to, you just don't see a lot of submissions from there in jiu-jitsu. And I think that this might be one of those cases, even though there's a little bit of gaps in terms of control from what Kielholtz is doing from here. But you see... Middleton here, what does she do? She reaches her arm way out in front to control the bicep like she's in side control. Yeah, I don't know that that's a good idea. Separating your arms from your body, usually always, even in grappling, always, always, always a bad call. Look at her arms flailing here. And you can see Kielholtz's base leaning into her as she's trying to come out the side. Um, and she's spreading it wide, occupying the space underneath. That part is really great here from Kielholtz. And she's going to grab the wrist and immediately look to pin it. Now, she's got it a little high. And you can see um, Middleton's body is weird where it's kind of long. So even though she's got total control of her head and neck, uh, the rest of the hips don't go with it. I have seen people who have such a good scarf hold game that the, that the person's hips can't really move much underneath because the spine is so tightly controlled. I also would argue that women grapplers have more um, flexibility in their bodies generally. So that probably contributes to this a little bit. So she's going to try and grab that wrist and shove it between her right away. But Middleton kind of gets a hook here and prevents that from being used because you can press it down now, but you can't really get it you can't really exert a shearing force. Yeah, you can push it down, but that's not going to be enough because partly she can hold it back. And two, you need to pressure down while the other leg comes up, right? You need to you need to have your hips driving while pressing down, and that's that shearing force sort of that she can't two way motion that she can't quite get because her hip is being controlled here with this leg. This leg is on top of this hip, no shearing force. It would require her just to be like a brute and just shove the arm down and. Understand, you can tell there's a there's a difference here in physical strength. Kielholtz not only is a master of this position relative to what Middleton is accustomed to, but on top of that, you could tell she's a physically strong woman, right? Um, okay, so let's see how she's going to work this out. Middleton doesn't really know what to do here, understandably. It's hard to know what to do here unless you've been in some kind of position like this. But as a general rule in jiu-jitsu, we've talked about this, and you can see Kielholtz is using her own elbow to pin to the leg while closing it down on top of the arm of Middleton. This is going to prevent Middleton from withdrawing it, right? So she's going to just pin her own elbow down and into her, and that's going to control the position for her until she can free that hook, which is what she needs to do. But Middleton trying to, to act as sort of like a blocking mechanism here. But see how she just stays in space? She needs to keep moving. You can't just stop. 
And, you know, if you've already lost your leg, I realize, or your arm rather, then it's easier said than done. But that's kind of what has to happen here. You have to, you have to, she needed to step over her own arm and then find a way to pop her head out. Um, there's a way you could actually, from underneath, there's a way you can actually reverse and then get on top and side control. But again, if you've never really practiced these things, um, you know, you're just your Kesagatami game. How good is the average jujitsu player in MMA? How good is their Kesagatami game? Not great. So you see here, she's trying to free outside of the hook. She's still locked on top of it. She's going she's gonna to bring her base together. This was a moment for Middleton. As you can see, her base is no longer spread. You can see she's bringing her knees together. Now, you might need that at the end once you've, once you've really trapped the arm. But here, it doesn't necessarily do you uh, a whole lot of good. But she's trying. She's trying to free that arm, that leg outside the hook without losing it. And she's holding on for dear life. But the big mistake here for Middleton was, man, you just cannot let your arms, you cannot let your arms get around you. If I'm her, I'm not punching her in the face. I'm pushing on the back of that elbow uh, and trying to get in between the space there. like an, Almost like you're running her like a backpack. Rather than coming over the neck, I would come underneath the arm. Not necessarily that would work either, but it's better than just doing this, which is... Essentially nothing. Now you can see she shifts her hips back a little bit. This is to create her, give her a little bit of room, both to control the arm and to get her hips in the position she's going to eventually need to do that to come out. She's now unlocked. You see she scooted her hips back twice now. Look at this. She scoots her hips back not once but twice. Here we are. She's going to free that leg and she's going to scoot a little bit. You see that? Scoots just a little bit, just a little bit. To get what she wants, she comes up to block the leg from re-hooking, right? Now her base is together. Here she can be moved. She is no longer has a spread out base. Her, her, her base has been brought together. She can be moved around at this point, but Middleton's freaking out about her arm, understandably. She resets. Now she re-spreads her base. She's going to shove it down, and she's going to come up on top, and then she's just going to hip into it while she holds it in place. Like that. And that's a show. And that's a wrap. Boom. That is nicely, nicely done. Now, it's crazy that she didn't have enough control to control the back and the hips of Jessica Middleton. And she was still able to get that. That tells me that, one, her grip around the head must have been incredibly tight. And around the neck. And, two, her grip strength there must be insane. Yes, Middleton made some mistakes. She put her hands out when you're not supposed to. That's a no-no. Lots of different things that could have happened here. But, nevertheless, to do this so quickly, so effortlessly... You know, I don't want to say it's a Ronda Rousey-esque kind of thing, but to see a woman get a throw, get a submission, and get one that's like with aggravated force very quickly into the first round, in that sense, is very reminiscent. But this is very much her own submission, and it's a nice bit of work here from Denise Kielholz. And last but certainly not least, we take a look at what's coming up in the week ahead. Not a lot to to really talk about. I hope you all have a good Thanksgiving. But And after that, you're going to get UFC Fight Night Bisping versus Gastelum also known as UFC Fight Night 122. This will take place, or UFC Fight Night Shanghai. UFC is going to make its debut in mainland China. Uh, this is going to be at the Mercedes-Benz Arena in Shanghai. Main event is going to be Michael Bisping taking on Kelvin Gastelum. In the co-main event, I guess, Li Jiang Lang taking on Zach Otto. Wang Guan taking on Alex Caceres. And then a Muslim Salikov taking on Alex Garcia. You're going to have to give me uh, a pass on this one. For the prelim card, Zabit Magomed Sharapov taking on Shaman Moraish. That's actually a great fight. Keenan Song versus Bobby Nash. Kalen Kern versus Yan Xiao Nan. Ping Yuan to Halu versus Barat Kandare. Chase Sherman taking on Shamil Abdurrakhimov. 
Uh, Yanan Wu taking on Gina Mazzani. Wuliji Buren versus Rolando Dai. And then Cyril Asker apparently is missing an opponent. So, not the greatest card I've ever seen, but it is the one that's next. All right, guys, you know what to do. My email, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. Did I miss something? Did you want to note something? Did you like something? Did you hate something? Send me a note over there, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. I'm on Facebook and Instagram by the exact same name, LukeThomasNews. Um, I will be back next Monday with another Monday Morning Analyst. Hopefully, Gastelum and, well, you know what? Well, you know what? I don't want to hate. Maybe somebody on that card, uh, despite the main event, will give us something of note. Appreciate you guys tuning in. Have a great Thanksgiving. Do not drink and drive. And if you need to, call an Uber, walk, ride the bus, I don't know, or just drink at home. Do not drink and drive. It is a very bad thing. Uh, okay, until then, appreciate you guys tuning in. Happy Gobble Day, and uh, enjoy the fights. <laughs>